This is episode 99 of Beyond the Bulletin, published on August 20th, 2021. Hello and welcome to episode 99 of Beyond the Bulletin. From the University of Waterloo, I'm Brandon Sweet, editor of the Daily Bulletin. And from Media Relations, I'm Pamela Smythe. On this podcast, we go beyond the pages and pixels of the Daily Bulletin to inform you about important news and views from our community. Please keep listening for my interview with Professor Jeff Hayes from History, where we discuss the situation in Afghanistan after the Taliban swept into the capital city earlier than anticipated. New episodes of the podcast come out every week, and you can find our archive of past shows and helpful links on SoundCloud.com. Please recommend us to your colleagues and connections at Waterloo. Thank you for joining us as we go Beyond the Bulletin. So, Pamela, tonight we're going to party like it's episode 99. Indeed. Now, I want to remind people that our 100th episode contest is live. You will find a link to it and the contest rules in our show notes on soundcloud.com and at uwadaloo.ca slash daily hyphen bulletin. You could win a $100 gift card for W Store. We'll announce the winner in our special 100th episode, which goes live on Friday, August 27th. Now, there's also an anonymous survey that pops up after the quiz. It is truly anonymous, truly anonymous, and it will help us keep Beyond the Bulletin as relevant as possible for our audience and maybe attract some new listeners as well. So please take part. Yes, yes, please, please take part. It's optional, though, but please do it. (laughs) You're being voluntold, people. You're being voluntold (laughs) to do it. Okay, so here's what's been happening. President Vivek Goel and Provost James Rush sent a memo to the campus community on August 16th that clarifies the guidance around self-declaration of vaccination status. You'll recall that last week the university announced that starting on September 1st, anyone who comes to our campuses will be required to declare their vaccination status, and those that do not report being vaccinated must undergo regular COVID testing. The process to declare your vaccination status will be mandatory for anyone coming onto campus. The university will require you to provide an attestation that the information you give is accurate and truthful to the best of your knowledge. For those who are not vaccinated or choose not to answer, you will be asked to provide an attestation that you will participate in the rapid antigen screening program, which will allow you to come to our campuses. That's a lot of attesting. At this time, the university plans to continue to rely on your self-declaration of vaccination status. However, you will be asked to consent to provide proof of your vaccination or test result status at any time if it is required. All information you provide is completely confidential and the university will only publicly disclose non-identifying information. In order to properly administer the program to attain maximum compliance, the university will follow up with individuals who do not participate in the vaccination self-declaration, screening, or testing processes. Failure to participate may result in changes in your access to our campuses. Starting September 1st, you must have completed the declaration before coming onto campus. However, all members of the community will be asked to complete the declaration by October 1st, regardless of when you think you will be on campus. More information on how to complete the declaration will be communicated to campus in the near future. More information and a collection of frequently asked questions are available on the COVID-19 information website. COVID-19 testing, rapid screening, and vaccination is available through Campus Wellness for all University of Waterloo students, employees, including postdocs, and our family members. We'll put those links in our episode show notes on SoundCloud. That's right, postdocs. We see you. (laughs) (laughs) Technically, aren't they employees? 
Oh, I suppose, but they occupy this weird, nebulous, liminal sort of state between faculty and employee. It's kind of cool, actually. They're special. They are special. That's why they get a week of appreciation. That's right. We appreciate those postdocs. While we're on the subject of COVID-19, the Health Sciences Campus Vaccine Clinic, led by the Center for Family Medicine and hosted in the University of Waterloo School of Pharmacy, saw its last vaccine recipient on Friday the 13th. More than 75,000 COVID-19 vaccinations were administered at the clinic, which was set up in March. This clinic, along with others in the region, was supported by staff and volunteers, many of whom are community members from the University of Waterloo, faculty and staff from numerous departments, nearly 40 pharmacy students and university alumni and retirees. From all of us, thank you for your support and efforts in helping make our community safer. Now that vaccination clinic may be closed, but there is a vaccination center that is now open on campus at Health Services. Vaccinations are available to all students, employees, and family members of students and employees. See the University of Waterloo's coronavirus website to learn more. You can also visit the Region of Waterloo's website for more information on booking a vaccination at other regional clinics. Now, here's what's coming up. Well, we appear to be barreling through August with no signs of stopping, and that means we have to start thinking about residents' move-in. Campus housing is preparing for another busy time as the university gets ready to welcome back larger numbers of students to campus for in-person experiences. Associate Provost students Chris Reed sent a memo to campus looking for help to make the move-in experience memorable and positive for our incoming students in residence. This year, residence move-in will take place between September 1st and September 6th. Each resident will be permitted to have two companions support their move. You can get involved by volunteering to be one of the daily volunteers needed during the move-in period. Each volunteer shift is two hours in length. So as I understand it, campus housing is looking for between 15 and 50 volunteers each day uh, for move-in. And there are three different types of volunteers that are needed, including... Active screening volunteers, who are the first point of contact when our residents arrive on campus. Your role will be to welcome students to Waterloo, ensure that they have the appropriate move-in appointment based on their arrival time, and verify that those arriving have completed their pre-arrival active screening questionnaire and are safe to move in. Directional volunteers, those friendly faces helping our residents follow the right path to their right destination, uh, will be helping point people in all sorts of directions to find the right parking lot, building, or residence suite. And finally, sanitization volunteers who will be helping our residents keep their new home safe by asking them to sanitize their hands as soon as they enter their building. You'll be standing by a hand sanitizing dispenser and will be encouraging all those who enter to sanitize their hands effectively or helping to sanitize high-touch surfaces across the residences. All volunteers will be required to wear a non-medical face covering. Volunteers will attend a virtual training session on August 26th from 11 a.m. to 12 noon. If you have questions, you can email housingvolunteer at uwaterloo.ca. We'll put the link to sign up in our episode show notes on SoundCloud. And now the interview. When the United States announced that it was pulling its forces out of Afghanistan, the estimate was it would be weeks before the Taliban would make its way to the capital. The U.S. military had spent years and billions of dollars training Afghan soldiers to fight back against Taliban forces. Canada's military contributed the second largest group to the NATO training mission in Afghanistan before leaving that country in 2014. 
Well, in a matter of days, the Capitol fell. Here to discuss what happened and what the implications could be is Jeff Hayes. He's a professor in the Department of History and an expert in Canadian military history. He's a frequent commentator on Afghanistan. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Pamela. Who is the Taliban? Well, the Taliban is uh, a group of largely Afghan, but also Pakistani fighters, largely young men, who have been trained in a very strict version of Islamic or Sharia law. They emerged out of the chaos of the civil war in the early 1990s in Kandahar, in the south of the country. They are strongly anti-Western. They see the Western intervention as, a, as an occupation by non-Muslims. And so they are driven very much by, uh, uh, as I say, a strict interpretation of Islamic law that includes stoning for adultery, uh, hands being cut off for theft, and certainly the role of women is to be strictly controlled, that uh, they don't want to see women in schools at all above a certain age. And so it, it is a very reactionary kind of force that uh, has certainly a, a great amount of support, both through Pakistan and other countries. They emerged, as I say, in the, in the uh, Civil War of the early 1990s, took over in large measure because they provided security in an Afghanistan that had seen so many tribal and uh, so many factions and so much killing. And within that, they provided what seemed an, an attractive alternative to all the casualties that had been suffered mm. after the Soviets pulled out in the late 80s. So the, the Taliban are, as the word is, Talib, students of Islam, but they are uh, very much driven by a strict interpretation of Islam mm. and a, uh, a, a very strong hatred of the West. And support for Al-Qaeda. And support for Al-Qaeda. I mean, Al-Qaeda's interests very much coincided, it seemed, with, the, uh, with those of the Taliban, except Al-Qaeda, of course, wanted to find international targets, Western targets, which, of course, led to the, not only the attacks on 9-11. We should remember that there were serious attacks on the American embassy in Nairobi in the, in the late uh, 80s, as well as on a, a U.S. warship, the USS Cole, so Al-Qaeda had decided to spread its form of anti-Western uh, rhetoric in acts of violence. And that was what certainly drew them to Afghanistan. And of course, that's what led to an American and ultimately an international intervention in Afghanistan after 9-11. Now, the world seems to have been caught off guard by how quickly the Taliban was able to move into the capital and indeed the presidential palace. We've seen pictures of them with their weapons in the presidential palace. What happened to the Afghan national security forces? Because the U.S., they spent billions of dollars, not to mention other NATO forces, such as the Canadian military, who trained them in fighting back against the Taliban. The short answer is morale matters. And if the morale of those forces, however well-trained and well-equipped they might have been, uh, was lost. And I think the Taliban managed to sap the morale of the Afghan security forces very well. By the time the Canadians leave and many of the other European countries leave in 2014, 
the assumption was that the Afghan forces would start to look after themselves. But of course, they still had the Americans there to provide support, to provide mm. training, but also to, to supply uh, weapons and equipment and air power that would have bolstered the Afghan army and the Afghan police. But the Taliban, as we know, moved very quickly and, and through a kind of combination of negotiation in which they would uh, no doubt have uh, threatened and cajoled and perhaps negotiated, at least promised that if they laid down their arms, the Afghan army soldiers would survive and would be given some security. That clearly happened far quicker than anyone had anticipated. Henry Kissinger said after the fall of uh, Saigon, there was a lot of blame to go around. And no doubt the U.S. military will have to face a great deal of of soul-searching to understand how their assessments were so out of touch with reality. The images of desperate people trying to climb onto the U.S. Air Force plane as it was taking off from Kabul, it's so hard to watch. I mean, some people managed to climb on and then eventually fell to their deaths. That's how desperate they were to get out. Mm-hmm. It seems eerily similar to the fall of Saigon. Is that a fair comparison? Whether it's fair or not, that will be the comparison. The imagery, as you say, Pamela, is pretty strong and pretty stark. People of a certain generation will remember the helicopter landing on the uh, U.S. Embassy in Saigon and rows of people trying to get out. There is a a clear similarity there to what's happening in, in Kabul because, you know, there were so many people who were tied directly or indirectly to the international mission, interpreters, their families, mm-hmm. people that drove trucks in support, you know, the, the long list of people whose livelihoods and lives now depended on international security are desperate to get out in the face of uh, threats from the Taliban. We should remember, too, though, the jig was up by, let's say, 2015, 2016. It was clear that the Taliban were not going to go away and that the Afghan uh, forces and other international parties were going to negotiate to try to reconcile with the Taliban, to try to find a place for them within the Afghan government. So this has not been a surprise. The previous president had openly negotiated with the uh, Taliban in, in negotiating the withdrawal. It was clear that this was going to happen, the speed at which it happened is obviously a surprise, in part because the Taliban weren't following the terms of the agreement that they had with the previous administration. Mm. But the Americans had few bargaining chips. If they were going to announce their withdrawal, which they did uh, in the, you know, for the spring and summer of 2021, the Taliban knew that their time had come. There was no way in which they could uh, be slowed or even be checked on on the kind of terms that they'd agreed to. We saw they were desperate to leave, but what really is the situation for the people who were working as interpreters or women or just people who were against the Taliban in some way? Well, it's a really good question in part because we have to separate rhetoric from reality. And we do have to ask those questions as to whether or not this 20-year war helped Afghanistan. And I think in many ways we'll find that it did. But I wrote a piece the other day in which I tried to just simply look at the awful casualty figures. 
And it's the Afghan people that have suffered the most from 20 years of war. At least uh, 70,000 Afghan civilians have died in the last 20 years. Oh. And, and another 60,000 in the Afghan security forces. For the last 20 years, as much as we, we, the West, wanted to help Afghanistan, it was still a very deadly place. So one hopes, and it's true, that some of the advances, particularly in uh, the status of women, Taliban have made it very clear that those schools that were educating young women are going to be closed. Part of the problem will be humanitarian relief because mm -hmm. the drought and, and, you know, the supplies, the amount of funds that were going into Afghanistan may or may not be cut off. And if that's the case, then we have a real humanitarian problem on our hands and life will become much worse than what it is now. But when you measure it against the casualties, if there is some hope that the Taliban, as they did in the 1990s, provided security, then that may well be a measure by which we could say that the Taliban are at least ending the war and ending the killing. For those particularly in rural areas, life perhaps won't change all that much. For those in Kabul, where so much of the political and military and development uh, activities are taking place, it is going to be a time of severe change. And, uh, and, and many of them, as you say, were desperate to try to get out. So there are still U.S. troops there, a small number in comparison. They're holding the airport. Right. They're holding so the Kabul airport. We've heard about people in Afghanistan who were helping the Canadian forces have to yes. fill out forms in order to leave the country. And it sounds a bit impractical. What do you think should happen? The word has been out for several months that the interpreters particularly would be vulnerable. Uh, because of their uh, assistance to the to the international forces and and so the interpreters particularly are the focus of a great deal of attention. The Canadians have tried in the past few months to make sure that flights were coming in and out and that uh, interpreters were able to and their families would be able to leave. I don't know about the form filling out, but I would imagine that they're trying their best to in very difficult circumstances, to get as many legitimate people out as they possibly can and to, uh, to try to find them some kind of uh, safe and secure places to go. So I, I don't um, begrudge them for the efforts because it would be a difficult thing to try to identify those who are, dare we say, eligible to come. They would be desperate to try to get out extended family uh, whether or not those people are eligible, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But uh, some terribly hard choices, I'm sure, are being made on the ground in Kabul and in Ottawa right now to try to make sure that as many people are out and, as, and are as safe as possible. Canadian forces deployed to Afghanistan in 2002 as part of Operation Enduring Freedom. We sent 40,000 troops over the years. In fact, there were many countries who sent troops anyway over the years. How did we get to what looks like where we started with the Taliban back in power. Well, how much time do we have, Pamela? The, <laughs> uh, I suppose what we need to do is to understand that despite the enormous expenditure, that it was a very long shot. Really? At the beginning, sure. Mm. It is extremely difficult to try to intervene in Afghanistan and succeed. Why it's is a that? Landlocked, well, it's a landlocked country. 
The climate is terribly harsh, made worse by ongoing drought. It's bordered by Iran on the west. It, it's a pathway country, so borders are extremely important. The Pakistan-Afghan border to the south and east is about 2,600 kilometers long. It, it effectively divided the largest Afghan ethnic group, the Pashtun, who in, in some ways don't necessarily identify with the idea of, of Afghanistan. Oh, and then, and then to the north, you have uh, a whole other series of ethnic groups that are tied to the stands to the north, Uzbekistan and so on. So it's a very tribal place. It's a very harsh environment. It's tied very closely to the to those borders, and it's particularly influenced by Pakistan to the south and the east. So when in the 1840s, the British, who were then in British India, decided to take over Afghanistan, they were there for three years before they were driven out, humiliated, their armies killed almost to the man. It, it, it's not easy to get to, and it's not even an easy place to stay in. And the Russians saw that again in the late 70s and early 80s when they invaded. They lasted nine years. So as uh, a commentator said recently, the fact that the American-led initiative lasted 20 years was because the Americans had more money. Those relationships with particularly Pakistan are crucial because it was where the, as much as some elements of the Pakistani government will deny it, the Pakistanis were on one hand allies who lost a great many people in the fight against the Taliban. Certain segments of the, of the Pakistani establishment encouraged the Taliban and nurtured them and provided them with safe havens and madrasas mm -hmm. in Western Pakistan. So when the Taliban left Kabul in 2002, driven out by the Americans largely, many of them went back to Pakistan. They went into their tribal areas and, uh, and grew in number as the Pakistani madrasas interpreted the Quran in much the way that the Taliban had. There's a Pakistani Taliban as well. So all of which is to say it was as if you were trying to fight a war that had an endless supply of troops, that had an endless supply. It was difficult to figure out how you're going to defeat the Taliban without dealing with Pakistan. I said in early 2003, four, all sorts of really good things that seemed were happening in, in Afghanistan, a new constitution, a new elected president, all kinds of reforms, lots of money that seemed to be directed at providing security and development. Lots of money to devoted to try to find alternatives to poppy because Afghanistan is essentially a narco state. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the major crop is, is opium. And when the Americans went off to uh, Iraq in 2003, Afghanistan became a sideshow. So despite the enormous amount of money and resources that were committed to Afghanistan, you know, the Americans, one might argue, decided to invade Iraq, and that took everyone's eye off the ball as far as Afghanistan was concerned. Mm. Do you think it made the difference? Yeah. I, I think it, it led to a growing resistance. Americans under George W. Bush, who has a lot to uh, account for in all of this debacle, uh, his advisors thought that, Afghan uh, that Iraq would fall and provide security and so on and so forth. 
And it just simply spread the problem um, when Canadians began dying from um, improvised explosive devices in Afghanistan. That was a tactic that had first been really used in Iraq at that point. Which is the debacle, Afghanistan, Iraq, or both? Both. It was one of the great, uh, it seems to me, one of the great moments in Canadian history when Jean Chrétien got up in the House in March of 2003 and said we would not be going to Iraq. That whole war was based on a lie. And it was based on a kind of ideological view that's now been undermined completely. It, it led to a debacle of the worst kind. And, and it's unsettled. It's unsettled the Middle East in dramatic ways that no one anticipated. But it's also led again to hundreds of thousands of deaths. 158 Canadian soldiers died in Afghanistan. Many more were injured and or are living with the effects, such as PTSD or the effects of injuries. I can only imagine what the families of veterans people who, or people who died there are feeling and thinking when they see the Taliban back in power and wondering what it was all about. What do you think? I, I've seen enough, and I know some Afghan veterans who, you know, devoted themselves to a long, pretty arduous training process to to do things in, uh, whether it was in Kabul or further south in Kandahar. And uh, I know people quite close to me who worked with the Americans in various capacities. So it it's a pretty it's a pretty tough thing for them. To, to look upon all of their effort and to say, is this for nothing? And for those especially whose family members who've lost someone uh, physically or psychologically, uh, boy, that's, that's a tough thing. There's a sense, I think, in Canadian military history that we win wars. You know, we were part of the First and Second World Wars, and that mm-hmm. history was clear. But we should also remember that not all wars end as dramatically and as successfully as the world wars, Korea, a lot of Korean conflict uh, veterans would, would have found it difficult to figure out what it was there, what they were there for. The Korean conflict still goes on. Uh, It's never really been resolved. A lot of peacekeeping missions have gone badly over the last 50 and 60 years. I think in large measure, the Canadian armed forces proved themselves to be highly effective, well-equipped, well-led, And I don't think it was due to anything that the soldiers did that led to this outcome. Mm -hmm. Soldiers did what they needed to do, and they they were asked to do things that they had never been asked to do before, which to me is really impressive. And it speaks a lot to the training, and it speaks a lot to the idea that this war was going to be very different from something else that they trained for. And I think they adjusted to it. As I went to different conferences, they would talk about how this was a three-block war. And that you had to have people on the ground who were acting in very different ways. You'd have strategic corporals. And what they simply meant was that in a a three-block war meant that in one block there could be war fighting going on. In the next block there could be uh, refugees who needed help. And in the third block you needed some other kind of activity Mm -hmm. to, to address the problem. That was that was underlying a particular community. And as a result, you know, we created a a set of uh, of groupings and a lot of acronyms that tried to say uh, we're going to help this area secure it. 
through something called a provincial reconstruction team. Nobody had really talked about that stuff very much. And yet hmm. there they were, PRTs that grew up all across the country, led by many of the NATO countries. Canadians were down in, in Kandahar. And the PRTs tried to integrate different development people who could provide money, microloans to small businesses, particularly hmm. led by women, in which then the Soldiers themselves would provide security. The soldiers themselves could perhaps provide development. That was also pretty contentious because a lot of aid groups said soldiers should not be in the development business. That only led to a certain undermining of the trust and the neutrality that's traditionally gone along with this. So all of which is to say we were trying to invent a new way of going into a country and uh, and trying to negotiate, for instance, with local leadership, Mm -hmm. trying to ask them what they wanted. And that, of course, Hmm. gave so much influence to the to the interpreters at the time. Hmm. So a strategic corporal was someone who suddenly was being trained to do something. And then, you know, the technology of the time allowed a reporter to put a microphone in their face and they'd have to explain what the situation was. So suddenly that became another factor in how soldiering evolved Mm. and it evolved very dramatically. And from each rotation, each six months or so that a a group went in and out of Afghanistan, there were a whole set of lessons that they tried to learn that they tried to teach the next rotation. Hmm. So, and the Canadians did it very well. They were well-trained. They were articulate. They had some sensitivities to local culture. They were trained now in soft skills rather than simply in war fighting. So there's a whole debate there Mm. about how effective that was. But as far as uh, the Canadians acted in large measure in a highly professional way, and they did their job. Do you think that the images that we've seen and the Taliban's victory, do you think that will galvanize anti-Western sentiment? Historically, Afghanistan has always been a place where the big powers... (laughs) went and and died, I suppose. And in the aftermath of the withdrawal and in the aftermath of the Taliban victory, other big powers are going to try as much as they can to humiliate the United States. And so, you know, when the Chinese foreign minister is photographed standing with a Taliban official, uh, the Chinese are clearly eager to make a, send a message that they will support the Taliban um, it'll be it'll be fascinating the next few weeks to see which countries recognize the Taliban regime in Kabul. Prime Minister Trudeau has said they won't. Uh, I don't think the Americans will either, but the Russians, the Iranians will, and and it'll be interesting to see if the Pakistanis do as well. So all of which is to say that those are regimes that may or regimes, but necessarily countries that will. Uh, that will want to recognize the Taliban to make the Americans look in the worst possible light. I think the Taliban are anti-Western, and I think they're grim uh, people who whose main kind of motivation is a reaction to the West. And the Pakistanis and the uh, uh, Iranians, the Chinese, indirectly the Russians are all going to have a big stake to ensure that the Taliban are are at once legitimized and that they behave themselves. I hope that NGOs, non-governmental organizations that have worked in Afghanistan, 
before 9-11 are going to still be able to keep up a working relationship with the Taliban, with the regime, to ensure that humanitarian work can still continue. Well, we'll see. Thank you for sharing these insights. Thank you, Pamela. It's hard to look into the crystal ball, but uh, at least we have some history to work from. And things have obviously happened in the last few weeks that are pretty historic. So Mm -hmm. we'll we'll be assessing them for the years to come. Well, that about wraps it up for us this week. To ensure you don't miss an episode, please subscribe to the Beyond the Bulletin podcast wherever you get your podcasts and recommend us to your colleagues and Waterloo alumni. Stay safe, everyone, and do your part to stop the spread of COVID-19 in our community. Don't forget to participate in the Beyond the Bulletin Trivia Contest and, if you would please, the anonymous survey about what you like and don't like about the show. It'll really help us. If you have questions, please get in touch with us via email at bulletin at uwaterloo.ca. As always, thanks for listening as we went Beyond the Bulletin. So people are doing the quiz. That's great news. I hear the quiz is a little hard. It's not that hard. I th- When somebody said it was challenging, they said, well, it's a bit like a pub quiz. Maybe well, challenging if you've had a few a few pops. And we'll, we'll grade it on a curve, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs>